If you're, if you're new here, that's what we're doing here. We're gathering here every Sunday. This is Church of Bergen. Uh, we gather every Sunday to do that, to find our hope in Jesus, to find our rest in Jesus, to find our joy in Jesus, to, for the sinner to find salvation to Jesus, for the Christian to continue to find their salvation and joy and hope in Jesus Christ. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Mike McKinney. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Pastor Mike brought me up on stage uh, last week, and it's kind of the official announcement that I'm full-time here. Uh, what a joy it is to be a pastor. Uh, I said last week to continue to pray for me, please. I am desperately in need of your prayers. The Holy Spirit's help to be faithful, to continue to love Jesus all the more every day as uh, the judgment day draws near, which we do not have to fear in Christ because he has delivered us from that. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes as a church. We've been going through this book, and we're about a little over halfway through in chapter 7. Uh, so if you guys want to go ahead and get your Bibles out, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Uh, I say this every time. In the middle, you'll find Psalms, and then Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes is right after that. Um, I also feel like I should say this. A couple of you guys have been asking me why I bring this pulpit out. Mike likes the, uh, Pastor Mike likes the little stand there. It's not like a nonconformist thing. It's not like a rebellion thing. It's just, it's just preference. So just thought I'd get that out there um, just in case you were wondering. So uh, before we dive into the Word of God, it's very appropriate and necessary uh, that we pray. We need the Holy Spirit's help not only to preach but also to hear the Word of Jesus Christ today. So Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is our rock, our refuge, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Lord, our King, and the one who humbly came to this earth like a servant, though he flung the galaxies into existence. We thank you that you have awakened our hearts to know him and that you are daily making us like him as we behold him in the gospel. Help me to be faithful now. Spirit, fill me. May your word, O oh God, go out speedily ahead of us and may it be glorified in the hearts of your people. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes has been kind of painting us a picture of a what seems like a meaningless life apart from hope in God. And his hope is not that you would like grab the steering wheel of your boat, boat and continue driving on into the vast sea of nothing, nothingness and hopelessness. His hope is that you would realize the hopelessness and meaninglessness, it's a hard word to say, without God and to turn in fear to the God of the Bible. And chapter 7 is kind of a, a turning point because he, he basically tells us that even though life at times may seem meaningless, a life of wisdom and a life of hope and true fear of God can be found. Uh, last week, Pastor Mike uh, covered verses 1 through 14. I'll be continuing and finishing off chapter 7. And last week, uh, Pastor Mike did a wonderful job because last week's text was kind of like, it almost looked like a, a feed of tweets on Twitter, and he did a really good, good job of just uniting them all together. Today, uh, Solomon is going to be providing us with much more of a unified point. And here's the point today. What Solomon wants you to know is that at the end of the day, one thing we can know about all of us humans is that we are corrupt in heart and fundamentally depraved. Welcome to church, right? Um, at the core of humanity, 
is a deep well that is polluted all the way down to the bottom. And what the Christian testifies to, what the scriptures testify to, what the gospel proclaims, is that apart from the grace of God found in Jesus Christ, transforming the sinner from the inside out, we are totally depraved and there is not a person on this planet who is righteous before God. And you can see the, ver- the main point in verse 20 and 29. I'm just going to point out these two verses. If you have your Bibles open, look at these two verses and then we'll kind of go through it together. Verse 20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And then at the very end of verse 29, he kind of repeats it, but he says it in a little bit different way, but it's basically the main point. This alone have I found. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And the rest of this passage is essentially Solomon's reflections upon the different ways that the depravity of man expresses itself. So the depravity of man is kind of like soil, and all over the world throughout human history, it expresses itself in different kind of flowers and plants. It might also be like an actor that plays three different characters in a play. They look different, sound different, act different. But underneath those characters is the same person. And just like that, although the depravity of man may look different, sound different, act different with different people, underneath the veneer of an upstanding, upright, citizen-looking person is the same corrupt nature. He says in verse 15, In my vain life, I have seen everything. Right? So he's going, I've seen a lot. I've lived a long time. God has given me profound wisdom to analyze what I've seen throughout human history. I've seen a lot of different people. I've learned a lot about people, and I've learned something. So I want you to to listen and take note. The first thing he's going to talk about, the first way that the depravity of man expresses itself is that the righteous man and the wicked man are actually the same person underneath. Look at verse 15. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? (laughs) What? It sounds like he's saying, I've seen a truly righteous man who, even though he was a good person, died unjustly, and I've seen a really wicked man, and because of his wickedness, he actually got the upper hand. So what we should do is, we should kind of find a nice, careful medium. Take Mr. Rogers and Adolf Hitler, put them in a blender, blend them up, and be that guy, right? That's the, seriously, be not overly righteous. Okay, don't, don't be too good. Be not overlooked, so don't be too bad. Just be this nice middle. That's weird. So what, what's, what's he saying? Is this, is this what he's saying? I don't think this is what he's saying. Because if you drop your eyes down to verse 20, he seems to contradict himself. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth. Okay. So you saw a righteous man, but now you're saying there's not a righteous man. 
How can that be? How, how can he say there's not a righteous man on the earth and yet he's seen a righteous man? The answer must be that the righteous man talked about in verse 15 is not what he actually seems to be. Then what is he? I think we all know. He's a self-righteous man. He looks good on the outside, but he's someone else within. We know this because it clarifies the nature of this righteous man in verse 16, right? So he says, don't be overly righteous. Don't take it to the extreme. And then he says, do not make yourself too wise. This is a self-attempt to make oneself right before God and wise in one's own eyes. Solomon did not just write the book of Ecclesiastes, he also wrote the book of Proverbs. And he says something similar in the Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Listen to verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your, your flesh and refreshment to your bones. The righteous man that, that Solomon is talking about here is the person who has a very good opinion of him or herself and feels justified in that opinion. Every single one of us, we have to admit, yes, we've done some things in our lives that make us look poorly upon ourselves, but there are plenty of times where when you look at yourself in the mirror, you actually are kind of delighting in what you see. Now, no one is going to think highly of themselves without any reason. We, we like to think highly of ourselves upon a basis. So we grab at anything that is essentially good in our lives, we rest our opinion upon that, and our opinion is then justified. And if you notice, what happens to this righteous man? The righteous, the, what happens to the righteous man in verse 15 is the same thing that happens to the righteous man in 16, which tells us that he's talking about the same person. Verse 15, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. In verse 16, be not overly righteous, do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? This is amazing because the inclination of the human heart to be a good person is actually a self-destructive enterprise. Jesus refers to these people as whitewashed tombs. Why? Because no matter how squeaky clean you wash the outside of the tomb, inside becomes rottener every day. These people spend so much time cleaning themselves up on the outside while the heart continues to fester and become more infected with secret idols. They scrub themselves with soap of religion, being nice and well-liked, while the virus of greed, covetousness, lust, and pride spreads within their hearts. And this is, this is the worst part. And with every good deed and good opinion earned, it just adds fuel to the fire. 
Now, just in case Mr. Rogers and Ned Flanders, if you don't know who Ned Flanders is, don't look it up on your phones, please. Uh, Just in case these types of people, the really good, nice, upstanding citizens, get uppity before Solomon and say, okay, so you're telling me that if I go this route, I'm going to die. So you're telling me that I should go and then just be the wicked man, go, go to the bar, drink Jack Daniels 16 times a day, sleep with whoever I want. Is that what you're saying? Because apparently what you're saying is the wicked man gets away with things. Is that what you're saying, Solomon? He would say, I did say that. I did say that the wicked man does get the upper hand. But the wicked man also receives the divine death sentence from the courtroom of heaven before he even comes close to the end of his life. Verse 15, there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Verse 17, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? A life in outright rebellion toward God may win you the world, but your soul will be forfeited and the new world to come will not be yours. Solomon's father, David, struggled with this exact same thing, his father, David. In Psalm 73, it's an amazing psalm. And during the psalm, he's, he's wrestling, he's struggling with how the wicked man seems to rise to the top in business. He seems to, always seems to be winning the crowd and gaining the applause of man. And he actually confesses his envy of these people. But God in his grace While he's praying to God, God in his grace reveals to him what is to come of these people. This is in verse 16 and 17 of Psalm 73. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Jesus put it to his disciples this way. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Yes, the wicked man may get away with things. The wicked man does seem to gain the applause of man. He does seem to get more than we would bargain for. But I was reading my devotions this morning about the man who stores up things in his barns, at the end of his life, as God says to him, you fool, this night is required of you. Your soul is required of you. Solomon is laying out the depravity of man that lies underneath those who seem righteous and those who are living in outright wickedness. And he wants us to grasp these two types of people for our own good, for the good of our souls. Look at verses 18 and 20. It is good that you should take hold of this, And from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both, self-righteous and the wicked. Wisdom gives strength to the wise, man, more than the ten rulers of those who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. The problem with both of these men is that they have no fear of God. The wicked man does not care what God thinks about him, so he takes the law of God and throws it behind his back and follows the cravings of his flesh. Whereas the self-righteous man 
thinks he can fool God with his three-piece suit on Sunday while his idols in his heart are continuing to be clung to, power and greed and money. And he does not realize that the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So this self-righteousness and wickedness thing, it's, it's kind of like two sides of the horse that all of us tend to fall on based upon how you're particularly wired. So some of us, we tend to lean towards a self-righteous man. We tend to follow the rules, thinking that God is operating as a, expecting us to simply keep the rules and we can win his favor, and you tend to fall off that horse. Some of you tend to maybe fall on the side of, you have hard time keeping the rules, so you tend to fall on the, well, forget this thing, I'm out of here, I'm going to do whatever I want. And it just goes back and forth. But he says, the key to staying in the middle does not reside in your own strength. Look at verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. The beginning of wisdom is not in the strength of one's willpower. It is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. It is the, it is the joy of the Lord that is our strength. The first step toward breaking free is to realize your own depravity and that when you try to run your life in your own strength, you will perish no matter which way you take. It's the one who stands in fear of his maker and pleads for mercy. This is the same story that we saw back in Luke. We just finished going through the book of Luke, back in Luke 18 with the Pharisee and the tax collector. You've got two men. You've got the, you've got the, the self-righteous man, the Pharisee, who's up before God thanking the Lord in front of the church with the spotlight upon him. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not a wicked man. Thank you that I, I don't cheat on my taxes. Thank you, Lord, that I am not an adulterer. Thank you, Lord, that I keep the rules well. And he's sniffling, looking down his nose at the guy in the back corner, the dark corner, the wicked man. And I love this part in the parable that Jesus tells but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's when you realize that either way you take, you're done. And it's only when you come to the end of yourself, humbly before God, crying out for mercy, that the blood of Jesus Christ rushes in, forgives, and justifies, and welcomes you, and adopts you into the family of God. Now, the next way that Solomon has seen the depravity man express itself is hypocrisy. So we saw it in self-righteousness, wickedness. Now we're going to see it in hypocrisy. Look at verse 21 and 22. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Now, here's my question. What is it about hearing your servant cursing you that is relevant to this situation? How is this relevant? I think it's because, because first of all, he's talking about slander, and the ways that humans like to poke holes at the reputation of others, but we will fight to the death to protect our own name and our own renown. 
Now, here's the thing. When you hear someone who is important, whose opinion matters, if you hear what they say about you and it's kind of like a slanderous statement about you, chances are, because their opinion matters so much, you're going to take it more seriously and maybe question yourself. Okay, these person really matters. They're really important. They're really intelligent. I, I kind of, I trust what they say. They're saying these things about me. Is this true? But if you hear someone who you thought was less than you, it's a completely different story. When you hear someone who you think is at least equal with you, but who you may have implicitly, subconsciously viewed as not as cool as you, we say, how dare they? Who do they think they are? Do they not know who I am? And the reason is that we hold high standards for others to fulfill while lowering the standard for ourselves. We expect others to go the extra mile to preserve our name, to make much of us, and to preserve our reputation, but we won't go two steps in preserving the reputation in the name of someone else. Think about a time when you've discovered something true about someone, like one of those juicy, delicious truths about someone, and you kind of share it with someone else to take a bite from, and it feels good to talk about it, and we won't even lose a second of sleep because of what we've done. But if Joe Schmo says one thing about our new haircut or the clothes you are wearing or the way that you spoke to your child, it's the smallest thing if whoever says one thing about one thing in your life that is even the most tiny little particular detail, we can't even sleep at night because of the rage within our hearts. I think Jesus would be right in giving the rebuke to the teachers of the law. Right? I love this story. There's this moment when Jesus is saying, woe to the Pharisees. He's rebuking their hypocrisy. And then one of the teachers of the law speaks up and is like, uh, we find that offensive, what you're saying. He says in verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And I love Jesus. I'm not even finished with you. Verse 46, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Right? We lay, we lay these high expectations upon others, but we relax the expectations for ourselves. And really, this is just an obsession and a love and a delight in our own name more than Christ's. There is, there's one name in the end that's going to matter, and it's Jesus Christ. There's the famous passions of Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being humbled to the point of taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that every, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
at the end of time, that's the name that's going to matter. And when you realize that, when the Holy Spirit awakens your eyes to the beauty and the renown in the name of Jesus Christ, it frees you, it liberates you from yourself. And the only person you are jealous to preserve the honor of is Jesus Christ. You will gladly take a rebuke from someone else. You will gladly someone slander your name as long as it exalts and lifts up the name of Jesus Christ. The gospel liberates us to treasure the name of Christ more than our own. Now, I just have one last question before we move on. Why, what is, it, why is Solomon talking about cursing here? Of all the things that he could have talked about, why, why talking about, talk about something that comes out of your mouth? It's because what comes out of our mouths is the clearest evidence of the depravity within. You can read it in James chapter 3. He talks about how the flame is, excuse me, the tongue is like this poisonous thing that sets a, a forest fire ablaze. That we use our tongues to curse people. And we are corrupt to the core and depraved in heart and mind. And these things that come out of our mouths reveal this to us. I can't tell you how many times in my own personal lives I have said something to Karen, my wife. It just kind of impulsively, it wasn't like crafted, it just, mm, it just urged out and it just comes out with like a dagger earlier in the week, and I come in on Sundays to worship Jesus, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being enthralled with Christ, and the Spirit of God will, will typically bring that, what I said, to my mind. And I'm telling you, nothing, nothing lays me more low than on Sunday morning worships. When I, when I see, when the name of Jesus Christ is lifted up, it reveals how low I really am. And even the smallest thing, like what comes out of my mouth, it breaks me. But it's always a sweet sorrow, right? It's never a, I'm going to hell. It's, thank God for your mercy. Thank God for your grace, Lord. And he says in verse 22, I think it's what's the key here. Is it, when, you be, when you are more in tune with the depravity within you, as evidenced by what comes out of your mouth, you are much more careful about what you say to people, and you are less quick to defend yourself. He says in verse 22, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. This is a, it's a practical truth. When you realize that you yourself, when you hear someone who you thought was less than you curse you, immediately what should come to your mind is, that may bother me, but I too have the similar nature. I too have done the same thing. I too am guilty of it. And what I need to do is not defend myself. What I need to do is lean heavily more upon the name of Jesus Christ. Now the next thing that Solomon says here, it reminds me of this time about a couple years ago when I was, I was teaching at Eastern Christian and I was a Bible teacher, and, I was, and we were talking about the nature of self-righteousness. We are talking about the, the inner depravity of man and how we can even use a good deed for our own self-righteousness. And how even in our goodness, it results in more wickedness. And there's this kid named Chan, right? He's off into the corner. And I'm, I'm, I'm teaching. It's more like preaching. I'm I, I screaming in class. I'm saying things. This, this kid's off to the side, and he's going, 
like this, right? And I'm, I stop, and I'm like, Sean, you, are you good? Do you need to go to the nurse or something? you need some water? Like, what's, what's the deal? And he goes, humans are scary. <laughs> and those are my favorite moments, because I didn't even have to teach it to him. He just discovered it himself. And we, we laughed a little bit, but it's true. He realized that the inner workings of the human heart are so depraved. They're so scary. They're so mysterious. So Solomon says, look at verse 23. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? The nature of man and the depravity of man is a strange and mysterious thing. It is very, very deep. I think the prophet Jeremiah was agreeing with Solomon when he said in chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So I want to ask you, are you, are you aware of this? Are you aware of the deceitfulness and corruption within yourself? Are you, are you in tune with the ways that your, your, your heart likes to self-justify things? Your heart likes to justify things that you do, likes to be deceitful. Are you aware of these things? Are you fully aware that the greatest enemy is not just Satan, but is the enemy within? Are you fully aware of this? And if you don't believe me, 1 Peter 2.11, listen to this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Too often in the Christian life, I think we, we're, we live way too much as if it's peacetime. It is war, friends. Why do you think Paul the Apostle lists out the armor of God in chapter 6? This is war. There is, there is constantly not just an enemy without, but an enemy within that the enemy without likes to prey upon. That is where he goes. He is constantly scheming, seeking to puff that up, to attack that, to go that part in you that is constantly waging war within your soul. And we cannot know ourselves on our own. I'm telling you. The best way to get to know yourself is by the Holy Spirit through prayer. There's this moment in Psalm 139 when David's talking about the Spirit of God, how the Spirit of God knows him so well, and at the very end he says this prayer, which is a very practical one. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now the last way that Solomon has seen the depravity express itself is lust. Look at verse 25. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness and folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, 
He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. I want you to take note of that phrase. He found something more bitter than death. What could possibly be worse than death? It's the cords of lust. Notice the language he uses. Snares, nets, hands or fetters. The sinner is taken by her. This is the language of enslavement. Now this this woman is not literally taking handcuffs and, and kind of slapping them on the wrists and putting fetters and shackles upon men and leading them away into a literal prison. This is an enslavement of the heart. The victims of the cords of lust find themselves with shackles and chains connected from their eyeballs to the shape of another person's body. And no matter how hard they try to look away, they always find the chains being tugged on again, and once more they find themselves looking back upon the lustful object they were before. And let me be clear, because this does need to be said. It may be a, a hard thing to hear. Lust is never an accident. It's a choice. No one submits to the power of lust unwillingly. You don't fall into the pit of lust unwillingly. You jump willingly. And this expresses itself in many ways today, but the most common, I think, is is pornography. Um, I'm not going to give statistics But I'm sure some of you guys have heard them before. The statistics are staggering for men, women too, boys and girls. And Solomon says that it's worse than death, that it is an assassin. Now here's the question. Why is it worse than death? How is this worse than death? I just just preached a sermon at my grandfather's funeral just this past couple weeks ago. He He was cremated. He was in a little container. What's bitter than that? What's more bitter than that? In chapter 5 and 7 of Proverbs, you can read them on your own, but I'm just going to choose a little couple verses. And he tells us what is so bitter about the cords of lust. Chapter 7, verses 20 through 27. With much seductive speech she persuades him with her smooth talk she compels him all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare he does not know that it will cost him his life And now, O sons, this is a father talking to a son. Now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, 
and her slain are mighty in the throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. The only thing worse than death is hell. It is hell he's talking about that makes this more bitter than death. And if, if someone does not break you free from the chains of lust, they will drag you to the pit of hell. I don't know how else to say this. And it's no wonder that Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you should lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So then, brothers, we are debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of sonship by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Child of God, do you know who's within you? It is the spirit of the living God with the blade of the sword, spirit, the, excuse me, the sword of the spirit. And the sword has the blood of Jesus Christ all over it. And it's available for your taking. Do not think that there are people in this church who are walking in victory over lust with a swagger. If anyone in this church has any form of victory, if you get to know them and you say, how did you overcome? And you say, I became desperate. I was crying out, God, Father, help me. The more victory you, you find in this, the more desperate you are. The more victory that you find, the less that you rely upon yourself, the less self-pity that you have, and the more you cling tightly to the promises of God and to the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the Gospel to liberate you. On this particular issue, Solomon found a graveyard of men and women it says in verse 27, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Among men and women, he knew one man who found victory over this, and it wasn't himself. And the reason why he didn't find the women is because those were the women he was preying upon. You can read this in 1 Kings chapter 11. You can read this yourself. It's right after the height of the kingdom of Israel, 
after the temple had been built, when all of Solomon's glory had been lavished upon him by the grace of God, when all the riches came to him and he became so famous, the kingdom of Israel became so famous that even the queen of Sheba, who is she? She comes from nowhere and says, I heard about your glory. I had to see it for myself. This is the glory days of the kingdom of Israel. And the next chapter, it says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. And it goes on to say that these women led his heart astray after other gods, except for his father David. And I believe that this one man that he's talking about here is his father. Now, if you know your Bibles well, you're probably thinking, didn't David commit adultery too? Yes. Two things in response. Number one, Solomon was born after this happened. So he's probably talking about the repentant and the redeemed David. Second, no one walks in perfection but repentant victory over this. And let's be clear. Victory can be found. Freedom can be found. If you are in here and the Spirit of God is in you, you can do this. You can do this. It is possible. If you're married to one who has fallen prey and the Spirit of God is in that person, are you for them or against them? Are you a source of encouragement or do you tear down? The blood of Jesus Christ is enough. Now Solomon... He gives us a glimmer of hope. Right? Look at verse 26. He who pleases God escapes her. Listen very carefully. He does not say he who escapes her pleases God. But he who pleases God escapes her. In other words, God is not up in heaven with his arms folded and saying, uh, you filthy sinner, whenever you get yourself out of the cords of lust and all your shame and all your filth, whenever you break yourself free from your past, then I might actually start loving you. Then I might actually embrace you as my son or daughter. Then I might actually be pleased with you. I don't know what type of God you worship, but the one true God, the God of the Bible, the God of the gospel, that one true God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he breaks through the prison doors by the blood of Christ. And he, he picks up that sinner, man or woman. He picks them up in all their filth and he looks them right in the eyes and he says, I love you. I love you. I make all things new. I can make you new. In me, there is newness. In me, there is a new nature. With me, there is forgiveness. Come, come be with me. My Father will take care of you now. The pleasure you're seeking for in all those things, leave those things. Come with me. There is pleasure forevermore in relationship with me. Do you trust me? Because those who put their faith in Christ walk by faith out of the cold, dark 
chamber of lust and into the warm light of God's undeserved, grace-saturated smile. That is what breaks the cords of lust free. It's the gospel. It's the power of God. You don't have to walk perfectly, just humbly and repentantly. And Solomon comes to a close at the very end. He sums his main point up, right? Verse 29, see this alone I found. God made man upright. This is not God's fault. The fact that we are all broken is not God's fault. He made us upright, Genesis 1 and 2 but they have sought out many schemes. So whether self-righteousness or wickedness or hypocrisy or lust, underneath it all, mankind is at fault. And it all roots itself back in the first sin of Adam. And when he fell, all humanity inherited that corrupt nature and the condemnation that belongs with it. And the only way, the only way that anyone born in Adam can be saved is if God provides a second one, a perfect one, a righteous one, a God-man named Jesus Christ. In Adam, his disobedience brings condemnation, but Christ's obedience brings justification. In Adam's sin brings death, And in Jesus' righteousness brings life. Everyone physically born of Adam can be born again in Christ and saved. All right, let's come to a close. So what? Like, why 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 should I know about the depravity of man? Just a couple practical things to know, and then we'll close. Number one, this truth keeps you humble. This truth keeps you humble. The human heart is wired to put, find any basis upon to which to build a high opinion of itself, which is a source of all kinds of conflict, bitterness, and pride. When the Tower of Babel begins to build high in your heart, the wrecking ball of your own depravity comes and lays it low. Number two, this truth puts everyone on the same level. Whether you are black, Puerto Rican, Colombian, white, Dominican, Chinese, Korean, Indian, or Italian, underneath your skin color, we are the same, which undermines a lot of racial animosity or superiority. And it brings humility to all sorts of human engagements. When I come to someone who is different than me, behind it all, I am conscious that I am a broken person. And I'm aware that the person I'm talking to is broken like me, and we're both in need of the mercy of God. Number three, this truth keeps you constantly dependent upon the grace of Christ. God's all-powerful. He could take away the flesh inside of you like that, but he doesn't. Why, why, why is the Lord leaving it inside of you? It's because it keeps you constantly 
weaned off of your own strength and constantly dependent upon the strength that God supplies. And in doing this, God always gets the glory and we always get the victory and joy of fighting against that and conquering that by his power that he supplies to his children. Number four, this truth puts amazing back into grace. The depravity of man renders him incapable and unable to come to Christ because we are born loving sin and not loving God. The only reason anyone gets saved is because God made them alive in Christ. Conversion is no less than a resurrection, period. And when you realize, like, I can't tell you how many times I have this thought on Sundays, I am singing to Jesus. I am singing to Jesus. There are so many people in this world who don't want to sing to Jesus. Why me? And it's because of God, by the Spirit, spoke to my dead heart and said, live. And I awoke and embraced Christ. Number five, and the last one. This truth is the first step out of the vanity of life under the sun, which Solomon so frequently testifies to. When you realize that there is something seriously wrong with this life and with ourselves, then the only place to look is up and over the sun where Christ is seated. The crucified and risen Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. When you only look under the sun, you find condemnation. But when you look over the sun to Christ, there is justification. If you only look under the sun, there is only a meaningless life. But when you look over the sun, there is eternal life. When you only look under the sun, you find only a depraved nature. But when you look over the sun to Christ, there is a new nature. When you only look under the sun, you will only find fleeting pleasures. But when you look to up over the sun, to the right hand of the Father, where Christ is seated, you find pleasures forevermore. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us in our condition. We thank you that Solomon has warned us, that he has explained to us, pointed out to us the different ways that our own nature, the, the enemy within can rise up. Oh God, would you, would you help us to become aware of this? Would you help us to, to admit that we are desperate for the blood of Jesus Christ? We are desperate for the victory of the cross and the resurrection. And if there is anyone in here who does not have the spirit of Christ, if there's anyone in here who does not have the new nature, the new creation that Christ offers. Would you do that now? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.